Welcome to the Open House podcast site, available at openhousecommunity.com.au. Since World War II, the force of Christian faith in the West has significantly declined. Most have pointed the finger at the church, but what if the problem is actually the way that faith is viewed and embraced or not? We still desire the solace of faith, but more and more it's secularised, even anemic. The new dream is the open road and freedom. Aussie author Mark Sayers says we want a watered-down, therapeutic dose of religion. Mark Sayers has written a book called The Road Trip That Changed the World, aimed at helping us better understand the cultural context in which we live and how to become what he says is an old kind of Christian that's not daggy or wowserish. This discussion is all too relevant and long overdue, I think. Mark Sayers, welcome to Open House. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you with us. Mark, can I begin by asking you to take us to those two lives and the two roads that you say that faith is today? Yeah, I think that, you know, we have, uh, you know, a, a, a view of life, almost a road, uh, you know, that's existed uh, in, in culture, in most cultures for, you know, thousands of years. And particularly in the West, um, it's really the idea of uh, seeing life almost as a pilgrimage, that uh, life is essentially a journey where we learn to die to self, and I think the Christian imagination has been that the end of the road is, is the cross, where we sort of, uh, you know, bow down before the cross and, and realize that God is bigger than us and that we must submit to him. But, you know, very much since World War II and, and you know, the sort of forces of secularism for the last few centuries, but particularly since World War II in the West, we've, we've desired belief and we desire God, but we also want sort of absolute individual freedom. And there's a motif that we see in culture again and again, which is of the open road that, uh, you know, we'd like to be moving, not committed, all possibilities open. So we, we want sort of faith, but we want sort of freedom uh, at the same time. Is that a particularly new thing, or has that been something that has been part of the faith journey for centuries now? Um, I think I think it's a new thing in the sense that um, the possibilities have been opened up by the West and, and by the the you know economics of the West and personal freedom mean that you know we want this double life in a sense. What I mean by that is that you know we still realise that you know because we have all this stuff and we have all these freedoms that we need God, but then we don't want to completely commit to God. So this sort of half faith is then born sort of in the West. The significant demise, as I mentioned, of the Christian faith came in the wake of World War II. Take us through, in your view, some of the dynamics that have brought that about. Yeah. So I think what happened that, uh, you know, in Europe, that faith had been waning for some time. The church had been moving away from the centre of the culture. Um, and, and particularly what happened after World War II, you had Europe was, it was in ruins, where European thought it got to was at this very pessimistic, nihilistic point. And then coming from the United States, and it was sort of fed by Hollywood, uh, you know, fed by, by books and so on, uh, was this new way of looking at life where it was sort of half religious, but then there was sort of this therapeutic, uh, feeling-centered element around faith where you could have God, but then you could have all the other good stuff as well. And I think that sort of uh, viewpoint is really the one that dominates our lives uh, and dominates the West. And the 60s had a tremendous role in that process. Absolutely. Uh, in the 60s, there were, you know, there, were, there were lots of positive things. There was the civil rights movement. Lots of countries around the world gained Nash, you know, their own identities after being colonies. But then there was also this flip side where we went on this process of throwing out so many of the things that we'd you know, had that were, were vital parts of our culture and this, this whole new way of looking at the individual and what individual freedom was and a pursuit of pleasure as an end in, in of itself uh, you know, became to the fore in Western culture. So you've looked at 
Christian culture in the 30s, pre-World War II, and the Christian culture today. What are the differences that you've observed? Yeah, if, if you look at the statistics, it's, it's really interesting. In the Australian church, we have stacks and stacks of people in the sort of post-70s uh, age demographic. And then, you know, if you look before then, you know, the numbers are bad. Often people talk about, oh, we haven't got many young adults, but we're also struggling with people in their 50s, in their 40s, even in their early 60s. And if you track back the sort of demographics, there's this tremendous change in the first generation of baby boomers, which came after World War II, who viewed the world so differently. So I almost say... Everyone born sort of post-1945 is almost has a youth mentality, even if in your early, early 60s. Um, and, yeah, you look at the generations that went before the war, some of our buildings, our Bible college, our institutions, money were built by that generation. And there's going to be a huge shock in the Australian church and the church at the West when that generation dies and we have this sort of, you know, multiple generations now which, which have this youth view of the world. Is it something about the hardship of living through world wars that drove people more to faith and in the prosperity of, say, 50s, 60s, 70s, when things started to open up. That's where faith becomes, as I said, somewhat anemic. Absolutely. I mean, if you look, if you look today in the West, the church is, is being, um, you know, in many ways sort of growing. The areas that it's growing is amongst migrants, particularly migrants from non-European countries who know hardships have come from war or just... Uh, you know, have a, have a completely different work ethic. And if you look at that pre-war generation, they, they lived through they lived through two world wars, they lived through the Great Depression. Um, they had a very, very different view of life. Whereas post-1945, you had that post-war economic boom in Australia and America, and that's really defined as we've had our ups and downs, but that post-war sort of economic boom has continued into our day. And, uh, yeah, it's given us a very, very different view of life and, and of how we interact with faith. And we view ourselves more and more as self-sufficient rather than finding our sufficiency elsewhere, ultimately in God. Absolutely. And, and just look at how people interact with church. You know, most people now, if you're, say, 30, you know, you've probably been to potentially four or five different churches. Uh, people will move denominations without thinking about it. Uh, churches, even how they attract people now, it's, it's a huge battle. Ministers sort of sweat at night, um, you know, in this sort of competitive market where they're afraid that if they don't put on a particular uh, type of church, that people will leave. And that's that's a, a very new thing compared to what it was like, um, you know, fifty and a hundred years ago. Yes, you've looked at ways in which we interpret faith to suit us. How do we do that? Yes, I think almost the way to put it is that that we we run our own lives, but we use faith as an accessory. Now, there's been lots of airtime that's been gotten in the last sort of ten years, particularly since September 11th, by the new atheists and um, you know the sort of viewpoint that uh, atheism is growing the West. But atheism still is a, still a minority voice. The majority of people in the West, um, I think it was Kathy Davis, the religious sociologist, said, uh, "Believe but don't belong." So we want the solace of faith, but then we don't want the commitments, the covenantal elements of faith that go with that. So we want we want to have God there if there's a, a natural disaster. We want to have God there on our deathbed. We want to you know bring God into the equation when we're lonely or we want something. But then when something's required of us, all those covenantal elements are replaced by a consumerist framework where religion suits us. I want to take you back in a while to the example set by the early Christian church and how in the wake of Jesus' life that so held to this kind of ethic that you're talking about. But is there a, an era or a person perhaps between then and now who best encapsulates when that faith was so much more real and so much more clear and strong than it is today? 
Mm. Well, in the book, I tell the the story of uh, the Japanese Christian Takashi Nagai, who uh, was an atheist, came to faith uh, in the very small Japanese uh, Christian community. Japan has a tiny Christian percentage um, of its population after years of two or three hundred years of intense persecution. And uh, he came to faith, and, and he was. Uh, what happened in World War II was that the bomb dropped on Nagasaki. It was actually dropped above the neighborhood where the Christians lived. And uh, his example that he showed in the sort of days, he was dying of cancer and, um, and was asking God, why have you given me cancer? And then the bombs dropped, and all of a sudden, everyone around him is dying of radiation. Yeah. And uh, the incredible sacrifice that he showed in the most terrible situation uh, is an, sort of an example of, for me, what it looks like to give yourself completely to God, uh, to sort of live under the shadow of the cross, if you like. Um, yeah, it's just a, a fascinating example of how that looks compared to, uh, you know, I guess our self-sufficient lives today. Yes, again, there's that hardship and that need to be dependent, which is a notion we so hate today, dependence. Absolutely. You know, self-sufficiency is, is one of the sort of foundations of, I think, the Western person. We we, we create these bubbles of self, self-sufficiency. self and, and we also, you know, one of the things that also defines the sort of post uh, war generation. There's a American psychologist uh, Martin Seligman who, who who calls it the California self, and he says the California self runs from pain. So whenever pain or suffering comes our way, we we run from it, and we prefer this sort of life which is devoid of those things. You know, and pain is an essential part of life. You talk about commitment or lack of it, especially when it comes to church things. Why is that? commitment a tougher thing today and i think that extends beyond matters of faith why is it a rarer thing today well it's interesting just just after the war the sort of first people to really uh sort of pick up on this bizarrely were life insurance salesmen and life insurance salesmen started having these conferences like in the sort of 50s and early 60s where they were sort of going something's changing people don't want to sign up to this commitment for life insurance they don't see that they're going to die and i think that's a vein that's gone through all western culture that there's a denial of death um, there's this belief that commitments um, hinder us instead of actually bring us life. If you look at African culture, you know, African culture has a value of Ubuntu, which is basically this idea that who I am is, you know, about the people who I'm connected to. Whereas in the West, we fear commitment. And I think part of it too is that, you know, we're in a consumer economy in the West where uh, commitment's actually bad for sales. People prefer us to be, uh, uh, you, know, uh, you know, open to being sold to something new. So that sort of framework goes through the whole of Western life and definitely influences uh, religion. Is there a problem with time for us and all the other things that crowd in on us? Can't uh, find the space? Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, um, you know, there's, there's, there's a framework, there's an American... Um, uh, psychologist who, who looks at you know his theory is that we we live in an attention deficit disorder culture that it's not just something that individuals get and he, he talks about two types of, of, of operating one is he calls f space where you're frantic and frenzied and 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 you know running around and stressed and definitely you know western culture at this time in history is like that and then he talks about the c space which is contemplative and and uh you know just sitting somewhere with you know, without your phone without something in front of you and he's, I don't know if he's a believer or not, but he, he says that actually the sea space is the religious place because when you sit and stop, you're confronted by life's great existential questions, you ask the religious questions, but when we're constantly on the move, text messages coming in, checking the internet on our phone, um, you know, we don't have that space to ask the big questions about life. On Open House, we're with author Mark Sayers, the author of the book, The Road Trip That Changed the World. So you talk about the road a lot in your book. What is 
that road trip that changed the world, and what do you mean by the road for us, Mark? Mm. Well, I use the, the road as a motif. I think that is powerful in Western culture. The amount of advertising that you'll see with an open road, yes. the, the, the freedom of going towards the road. I, I, I use the road trip that changed the world uh, from Jack Kerouac's uh, book, the American author, who, who, who wrote the book On the Road, which has just been uh, made into a Hollywood movie for the first time. It's just coming out soon. And uh, after the war, his um, sort of response to what he saw is this mass consumer culture uh, of the West was to go on the road. And he wanted to discover God, but he also wanted the sort of freedom of the road. He was a religious man, um, read his New Testament, his Bible every night, but then also sort of wanted the girls and the drugs. And so I use his sort of, uh, uh, I guess, vision of what life could be uh, as a sort of prototype of how we all live, that I, I believe that on the road is almost like a Bible, that even if people haven't read it, if it's influenced their lives. But interesting, at the end of his life, he, he sort of regretted, uh, you know, what the life he'd lived. He became an alcoholic. He died of alcoholism. Uh, but sort of at the end of his life, he had this, you know, really interesting sort of return to faith. You've divided the road up into three parts. Can you take us through those and why you've chosen these three parts? I think that what happens is that we, we have this value of the road, that we love the sort of endless destination because what we think that hovers over the horizon is, is happiness. But then because life is what life is, it's filled with suffering, it's filled with, with frustrations, it's filled with, with blockages, that we then have this sort of choice whether we actually want to have a very different view of life. So it's almost like we have these off-ramp potentials. Um, and I think that what people do at those point, well, instead of sort of integrating those and questioning the road, we just sort of take an off-ramp and we continue again looking for the endless highway. But really for me, what sort of undoes the road is that any road trip has to come to an end. That the difference between a journey and a pilgrimage is, is what's at the end of the road. And, and what Western culture wants is we want to be on the road, never fully formed, never hitting the horizon in between where we don't have to commit. But for me, the big question is, what happens at the end of the road? And, and for every human at the end of the road is that we all have to face death. And I think that's the sort of defining point. And so for me, what I'm trying to advocate in this book is that at the end of the road, you know, what Jack Kerouac found out, I think what people throughout history have found out is a confrontation with the cross and a confrontation with God. And I think when you get the end right, that's what, that, what changes the journey from just a journey for a journey's sake to actually a pilgrimage. And for me, a pilgrimage is, is, is life-transforming. And that end demands a choice, you say, whether we like it or not. Absolutely. That, that part of what we like about the road or the myth of the road is that we don't have to make a choice. We're flying along in, in our car, our protective, self-sufficient bubble, and we don't have to make choices. We don't have to make commitments. But the reality is that the road ends and the road, therefore, demands a choice. And, and you know, for me, that choice is whether we will follow God, whether we will bow at the cross. And for me, that choice is the ultimate choice, which then puts all of the other choices that we must make in life in perspective. Do you think we think less of that choice? And there may well be some people who are not even thinking that they're making a choice as they approach that end. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that, you know, p part of the myth of the road is that all options are open. You know, we live in, in, a, in, a, in a culture where the, the choices have been sort of reinterpreted into values, that you don't have to make this choice, that's your personal value. Um, so I think definitely the sort of myth of the road is almost a mechanism in the Western mind, uh, in a sort of subconscious that stops us feeling that we have to make choices. But again, too, I think that's a myth. Our secular world has in lots of ways become kind of a spiritual wasteland. What do you say has filled that space where previously a sense of the spiritual, a sense of faith has occupied an important place in our world? What's filled that space now? 
Yeah, well, I think what's interesting about humans is that we're, we're inherently religiously wired. So even people who would see themselves as, as sort of roaring atheists still look for things which are transcendent. You know, if you, if you look back in, in Western culture, uh, in the 18th century, they talk about this idea of the sublime, where an individual have these experiences on a mountaintop and that a sense of awe. And it was almost a way of trying to reach God, but, but have that God experience without fully having the revelation of God. And I think in our day, we, you know, we love events. TV is all event TV now. We have the you know, Australian Idol finale, um, you know, the football finals, the, the giant concert. So we try and fill our lives with these whoosh moments, um, as uh, uh, two philosophers, uh, uh, Dreyfus and Kelly, call them. Um, but the problem is what life then becomes is this constant accumulation of amazing experiences and wish moments which, which seem to offer a sense of God but never truly offer us God. They never transform us. So we almost become like addicts looking for the next hit all the time. At the same time, you say it's important for us to understand secularism. How would you define what that is and why is it important for us to understand it? Mm. Well, there's, there's a number of different definitions of what secularism is. But for me, essentially, what I'm trying to talk about in the book is that in the West, there's a, a force of secularism which tries to push religion into the private sphere. So it's, in a sense, it says, yes, you can have your belief, but it operates in your bedroom, in your worship space, in your small group meeting, but don't sort of bring that into the public space. So what that does is it creates almost this sort of a bipolar uh, a reality of faith where we have this sort of faith in our private sphere, but then we go out into the world and we have to operate as if God doesn't exist. Um, and so, in a sense, that creates this bizarre sort of environment for faith uh, to, to operate in, and it creates this sort of what I call a half-faith in people. I think it's helpful that you provide some advice on keeping faith sturdy for those with faith while they're on the road. What's your advice there? I think what holds us back is, is the idols of the Western culture, the, the idols that are not committing, that we are individually sufficient to ourselves. You know, what I'm trying to do in the book is, is, is show people that actually what brings life is commitments, is covenant, uh, that these things actually don't hinder us, actually add to life. But those things can only be done properly, uh, that we can only have the love to be in committed relationships, to be in community, when we understand that all of that flows from God. So I think the primary thing is, 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 is it's, it's so countercultural, but actually dying to self. It's, it's the most countercultural thing in the West, that actually laying down our lives to something bigger, to God, uh, to Christ, on the cross, and then out of that flows this very different view of life, where we view life completely differently, where everything has meaning. And I think that's one of the huge things today, is that when you take the idea that we live in a secular world, that perhaps you know, I do have my faith, but it's just in the private sphere, is that all of a sudden things don't mean as much. But when you take the view that God created the world, that he died for us, that he died on the cross because he loved the world and creation so much, everything then means something. All our choices absolutely matter. So encouraging people to, to look at their choices and, and to find faith in those choices is, is absolutely essential. Although lots of people will find the notion of that kind of choice a very polarizing thing. They'd Ab like to ignore it. Absolutely. And, and I think that, you know, well, when I sort of, you know, I'm the Bible's a book I sort of read my entire Christian life, but just reading it, thinking about all these things as I was researching this book, I, I just was struck by the polarizing nature. And, and coming back to the metaphor of the road, one of Jesus' sort of most powerful and I think sobering sort of uh, you know, advice to us is that there's two roads. You know, one is wide and, uh, and uh, you know, inviting but leads to destruction. And then there's the other path, which is, which is smaller and, and less inviting but leads to life. 
So I think that, you know, that, that's something that really struck me that, you know, when people hear this stuff, our, our tendency to want to have it both ways is so ingrained in us. But for me, the truth that just was reaffirmed to me in writing this book was that there is two paths, that, that life is polarizing. Mark, how much has the church played a role in this demise of the, the force of Christian faith in the West? And what would your advice be to those ministers who break out in the cold sweat, yeah. anticipating who might turn up today or tonight? Yeah. Oh, look, I think a, a, a huge thing that we've been influenced by is, is we measure success with the markers of culture. We measure success by creating whoosh moments that instead of you know, looking at the mandate uh, that we find in the Bible, in Jesus' words, that there's two roads, one's big, one's small, one leads to life, the bigger one leads to destruction, that we feel we have to replicate whoosh moments. And that can be you know, trying to create the giant YouTube concert or it can be trying to create the cool little cafe atmosphere. I'm not saying those things are wrong in of themselves. But when those measures of success drives, drives when, the, when the cultural markers drive us, I think the church is in real trouble uh, at that point. So what should church look like? How would you advise those ministers on how to shape church to deal with this world and these outlooks, this yeah. worldview? I almost put that question opposite. And classically, that's a question that people ask me. I, I think church in, in Australia, in the West, is going to look different in different neighbourhoods with different people. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, for years I was obsessed with what does church look like. I'm much more interested now in, in what do I look like how is I'm being shaped in following God? How do the people around me need to be shaped? And I think the questions of what church then look like will fall into place. I think if, if you know, and, and the thing, I, I speak at a lot of churches and all different shades, and, 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 you know, what hits me is that you can have two that look exactly the same in their shape, but there's just something different in both of them. And that thing that you sort of put your finger on is people who are wholeheartedly choosing to follow God. Um, for me, that's so much more important these days than, than what actually church looks like. Mark says it's been a really interesting conversation and thought-provoking one. This book is The Road Trip That Changed the World, and we'll put the details up on our Open House Community Facebook page. Mark, thanks so much. My pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this Open House podcast. Thanks to Christian Super and Real World Technology Solutions. To hear more from Open House, visit openhousecommunity.com.au.